From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. All you mystery fans out there should be very happy with today's show titled Music to Die For. <laughs> well, anyway, our guest today, as you will soon hear, is both musical and mysterious. Gerald Elias grew up on Long Island where he dreamt of playing first base with the New York Yankees. But when the Yankees didn't call, he did the next best thing. He took up the violin at age eight and within 10 months won a scholarship to the National Music Camp at Interlochen, Michigan. Gerald Elias was the associate concertmaster of the Utah Symphony for 23 years, and before that, he played with the Boston Symphony and still plays with them every summer at Tanglewood. When Mr. Elias retired from the Utah Symphony, it was to write. And all the music in this episode features pieces which also serve as titles for his murder mystery novels based in the world of classical music. We're also pleased to have, have pianist Heather Connor with us. She's on faculty at the University of Utah and will be accompanying. The first piece is a movement from Giuseppe Tartini's The Devil's Trill, which is also the title of Gerald Elias's first book. We're going to go basically in order of the book titles, and I think I may never hear that title the same way again. Tartini said in 1713 that he dreamed he had, in his dream, made a pact with the devil for his soul, and... The devil was his servant and asked if he could play the violin. He handed the violin to him and played it so beautifully, so artistically, so inconceivably well that when he woke up, he tried to capture that effect, said he never could. But he came as close as he, as he could. We'll hear a movement now from Devil's Trill by Giuseppe Tartini, performed by Gerald Elias. Thank you. 
Gerald Elias performing the first movement of Devil's Trill, live in studio on Highway 89. Gerald Elias, former associate concert master of the Utah Symphony, on faculty at the University of Utah. There are so many musical things we could talk about with a man of your experience, but uh, we find ourselves really intrigued to talk today about your mystery novels and how they tie in. First of all, thank you so much for coming and playing. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Uh, is it true that The Devil's Trill started off as a technique book called Violin Lessons? Uh, absolutely. When I first wrote it, it was intended to be for uh, violin students who, you know, we all encounter the same challenges as students, and I thought I would uh, create an entertaining way of explaining how to solve some of those problems, so I wrapped a little mystery around what was basically a method book, and little by little, it morphed into something quite different. So when the person who became your agent uh, first saw it, what did she say? Was this something new to her, or, or what, did she, what assignment did she give you? Well, it, first of all, it was a him. Okay. Um, and uh, he happened to have been a trained musician himself, um, a violinist and a conductor who went to Juilliard and Yale. He had sort of a parallel life that I had. Um, and he took to it immediately because mm. it was, you know, right up his alley. But it turned out he was so close to the material that he felt he wasn't quite objective enough. So he gave it to his assistant, who is a mystery specialist. And from that point on, it really gelled, and, and we found the publisher eventually. So where does the name Devil's Trill figure in the book? You have lots of music in all of your books, mm. but mm -hmm. uh, how does it figure in the book? Well, in a very... No um, spoilers, please. No, don't worry. <laughs> a very tangible level, it's a piece that gets played by Daniel Jacobus's student um, in, in the thing, in the, in the story. And, but on a, a much more metaphorical level, um, the story of Devil's Trill by Tartini is uh, a man confronting his own personal demons. And that's what happens with our protagonist, Daniel Jacobus, in, in the story. Well, he's, so he's the main character, but he's kind of an unusual sleuth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's one of a kind. He's um, a, a blind, cantankerous, over-the-hill violin teacher. And I remember once I was doing a, a, a book event about uh -huh. Devil's Trill, and the, the book manager, bookstore manager, said, so, Jerry, does that mean it's autobiographical? <laughs> and, Just what you want. Yeah, and then he said, oh, of course not. You're not blind. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, that, that's the character, and uh, he's sort of a complex guy and a tragic comic guy, but uh, has a heart of gold deep down somewhere. Okay. I, I admit to a twinge of jealousy when I read that you wrote the first draft in Italy. Is that true? Mm, yes, I was on uh, sabbatical leave from, from Utah Symphony, and my whole family was... Um, spending the year in Italy in a little farmhouse in Umbria, so I had some I, I time on my hands, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. So I had a whole bunch of projects that had been lying on my desk for a, a long time. So were you able to just keep plowing through, or was it too tempting to just take off into the countryside? Oh, we did plenty of both, yeah. <laughs> we did a lot of countryside. <laughs> well, tell me about this. Is this a piece you grew up playing? you've had in the repertoire, or, or did it just come to you because of the name as, as you were writing? I first studied it as a freshman at Oberlin College ah. um, with David Cerrone, my fine violin teacher there, and just pulled it out of the shelf from time to time to perform it. Um, but it, it's such a unique piece, and it has such a unique story behind it that it just uh, fit perfectly with, with the ideas I had for the story, and it actually helped uh, give the story a lot more depth than it originally had. 
Very intriguing, especially we'll talk more about some of the other titles and how they how the plots came about. But uh, let's hear another movement from that. There are four mo movements total. As well, actually, there there are three, but the last movement, unlike most Baroque sonatas, has a come is combined of two movements. It goes oh, okay. back and forth between what I believe is the tormented voice of Tartini, the response of which comes from the devil himself. All right, well, we'll let you take your place. We're now going to hear another movement, the final movement from Devil's Trill, written by Giuseppe Tartini. He lived till 1770. We're listening way back in time as Gerald Elias performs. Thank you. 
Live on Highway 89, Gerald Elias with the third movement of Devil's Trill by Giuseppe Tartini. Devil's Trill, also the title of his first murder mystery. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Uh, Jerry, both Devil's Trill and Dance Macabre, which we'll be hearing in just a few minutes, feature Daniel Jacobus. But this is the character you invented, reclusive, blind concertmaster, amateur sleuth. There is something, I'm, I'm remembering the movie Wait Until Dark. Mm, mm -hmm. And that vulnerability of the character that you were following being blind. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, was there some of that? Is, is that part, do you think that played into why, why you picked that character? Uh, the main reason I picked the character is, well, actually there are two reasons. One is that we know that um, when people lose one of their senses, they, their other senses sometimes more than compensate for the loss of it. And with music especially, uh, where the ears are so important. When Jacobus lost his sight, it actually made him a better musician, a greater mm. musician, because all of his other senses became even more enhanced. So that was run, one reason. And again, the second reason was a little more metaphorical, which is that these days in the, the music business, uh, so much has to do with anything but what we hear. <laughs> and, um, you know, by having Jacobus blind, it enabled him to perceive things about the music that were more true to the heart. You know, that's really interesting because all we see when we go to the concert is the orchestra playing beautifully, the soloists come out and amaze us. Mm -hmm. But there's more backstage than just the green room it sounds like when you're talking about the distractions what what are some of those distractions in a music career like that well i mean the ones i talk about in in uh, devil's trill are you know the the pressures imposed upon musicians especially young musicians um by critics by agents by parents amazingly <laughs> enough um things like that you know all the things that can distract one from from what is really the important thing about music, which is you know creating something which will move someone's soul. Have you found that people relate to him? Yeah, you know, he, that relate to him in the way that um, you know they might not approve of his behavior or perhaps of his hygiene, um, <laughs> but you know they they sense that there's something. Uh, inherently sincere hmm. about him through all the, the the thick layers of crustiness he's put on himself. Did you always love mysteries? Yes. Uh, when I was a little kid, you know, I have an older brother and older sister, and my brother had all the Hardy Boys adventures. My sister had all the Nancy Drews. Yes. So, you know, right off the bat, I was reading all those things. And I'm still now, I, I, maybe you don't even want to weigh in. I had siblings who had both. I would never admit to my friends that I had read Nancy Drew. Mm -hmm. I would admit to the Hardy Boys. But did you think one series was better than the other? No, no, no. I, I didn't have a preference. I mean, they, they were just so entertaining and craftily put together. You know, just, they were both just right for the, <laughs> the age group. And, of course, then there were the Bobsy twins, too. We mustn't forget those. Oh, I need to catch up <laughs> on my Bobsy twins, I'm afraid. So you obviously have the experience to get the music part right in these novels. But what did you do? What kind of research do you do to understand how someone who is blind would function in all, all of the action? Mm. Well, most of it was closing my eyes and trying to perceive things as a blind person might. So are there um, things that you thought of that you wouldn't have? 
well, for example, there's this one place in Devil's Trill where he's uh, Jacobus is walking down a street in Manhattan, and he's very adept at it because he's counted the number of steps to get from one corner to the next. And as you know, in Manhattan, it's a grid, so mm. it's always going to be the same number of steps. So he always knows when he's getting to a corner. So things like that, you know, those are just just little detailed type things. But I, I also have a, a very close friend who's um, a violinist my age. We grew up on Long Island together. And she um, gradually lost her sight when she was um, a teenager. Um, but still, amazingly enough, uh, plays violin in an orchestra. Um, she has been a high school guidance counselor for many years. She has a family with, with grown-up kids, and uh, she is a source of my endless admiration. So I certainly had her in mind when I mm. created this character. Very nice. Well, we want to lead into the, the next piece, which is Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to ask, this piano arrangement, uh, and does it start off the same way, the tolling of the bells, the 12 yes. bells? Yes, you'll hear the, 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 uh, the bells chime midnight. Okay, we have on, to hear that. On the that. violin, <laughs> and then you'll hear the devil tuning up. There's no mistaking it. Yeah. So to lead into this, once you had <clears throat> written Devil's Trill, it was published, did, did you know then that this was going to be a series? Um, I knew there was going to be there were going to be two books, mm -hmm. um, and then after *Dance Macabre* came out, uh, my publisher said, "Well, how about two more?" So that, that's how that worked out. And you know, *Devil's Trill* was so motivating for me to just have that title in mind to create the story that I thought, well, let's let's keep going with this. All right, let's hear Dance Macabre. As we mentioned, this was uh, there's originally written for orchestra by Camille Saint-Saëns with solo violin, but uh, in this case, the piano will take the place of the harp ringing out those 12 bells of midnight, which according to old French superstition calls all the skeletons of the dead up, and then death plays the violin and makes them dance clear until dawn.
I always have to smile at that ending for Sansons. Composition, Dance Macabre, performed live in studio by violinist Gerald Elias. He's published a mystery novel by that same name, the second in the set. You are listening to Highway 89, and kudos, too, to Heather Connor, who all she had to do was fill in for the entire orchestra on that piece. Jerry, here's a paradox. You've written a book, which you have to, we have to read with our eyes, about a blind musician in which you describe music that we can't hear. So how do you bring the element of sound into the printed word when there's so much music going on in the books? You know, that, that really was one of the big challenges of, of writing the books because, you know, we, we read so, so much about music, but to describe actually what it sounds like in words and what it means in words is, is, is very, very difficult. Um, so, I, you know, I, I drew upon... If we could do it with words, we wouldn't need the music. Right. I mean, there, there's something absolutely unique about music, and we learn more and more every day um, how it opens channels in the mm. brain that nothing else can. Um, but, you know, I, I, having worked with great musicians through my, throughout my life, conductors and pianists and violinists, um, and hearing them describe what it means to them and... Um, as a teacher myself, trying to explain to students, you know, what's so special about the beginning of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, you know, it, because sometimes it, you need the words and you need the images, the visual images, to to get students or, or get uh, readers to kind of understand that it's more than just uh, a bunch of, of, of sounds. And not every reader will be familiar with classical music. Even you're probably introducing a lot of people that way. Mm -hmm. And I understand you post these on your website. So well, some of the pieces with, that you play. Oh some yeah, of these? yeah. I have a page on my website called "Music to Die For." Yeah, we sort of um, and that it, title it has for our it has performances like the ones here tonight of of the title music and some other pieces uh, that are significant within the, in the stories. Yeah. So. You also mention trying really hard to avoid musical cliches. Mm -hmm. And what do you, what would some of those be? Well, you mean in terms of of the the when verbal you, descriptions. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's so easy to say, well, this music is sad or this music is happy ah. or triumphant or, or things like that. You know, I try to go, get deeper than that so that, uh, you know, as you say, even a, a lay person reading the book will get, you know, a sense of excitement of, about the music. And hopefully, um, even if they might not love the books, they would go out and listen to the music <laughs> because certainly that's the, the best part. Well, anyone listening can go on to... Uh, Gerald's website, that's geraldelias.com, G-E-E-R-A... G-E-R. G-E-R-A-L-D, and Elias, E-L-I-A-S. And he does have that page, Music to Die For, with the music that features in the books, which mm -hmm. I think is actually quite unique that the author himself can play <laughs> play the pieces he's describing. So when you go to a book signing, do you take your violin? I've done a lot of those book <laughs> events, yeah. Yeah, kind of a multimedia kind of thing. And the, Two for the price of one. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fun for me, and it, it's a great way to kind of connect with, with audiences. So one of these books talks about a famous Stradivarius violin being stolen. Mm, mm -hmm. And, of course, immediately we think, well, that's because they're so valuable, you know, million-dollar violin. Mm -hmm. Does that really happen very often? Um, I can think of a couple of times in the news, but... Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, just a couple of years ago, the uh, concertmaster of Milwaukee had a viol uh, Stradivarius stolen from him right outside the concert hall. 
Mm. Uh, amazingly enough, it was recovered within a couple of weeks, and it was perfectly intact, and everyone uh, exhaled. <laughs> <laughs> Did someone just try to pawn it? Um, they were kind of holding it. They, you know, it's impossible, you know, to, to sell an instrument like this because they're so unique. Right. Um, so I, I think this, the guy who stole it really didn't have it all figured out. Um, but then there was another Strad that had been stolen a half century ago that was recovered, you know, 10 years ago. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does happen. And, um, yeah, I, I hold tightly onto my violin. So this next piece, this is also a title of a book, Death mm -hmm. and the Maiden. Yes. Well, let's hear the piece, and then we will go ahead and we'll, we'll hear just a little bit about that. I, uh, Schubert wrote this. Uh, of course, Schubert didn't live all that long himself anyway, but he wrote this at a time he was very ill, so ill he realized he was dying. And as he wrote this Death and the Maiden, uh, he he took these words from a famous poem, and I'm just going to read part of an English translation. The maiden says to death, Pass me by, oh, pass me by. Go, fierce man of bones. I'm still young. Go rather, and do not touch me. And death replies, Give me your hand, you beautiful and tender form. I am a friend, and come not to punish. Be of good cheer. I am not fierce. Softly shall you sleep in my arms. And I can't help but wonder if Schubert, who knew himself that he was at death's door, wasn't looking for a little bit of comfort in this. Here is Death and the Maiden, a solo violin version arranged by our performer today, Gerald Elias. Thank you. 
Gerald Elias performing Schubert's Death and the Maiden. 
You're listening to Highway 89 Live. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Gerald, we're so glad you came today. And part of the fun of this is uh, lots of pressure on you, but none on us, because we get to sit here and just enjoy while you have to perform live well, on I the radio. I shouldn't have written that part quite so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'll change well, it a little bit. <laughs> we had a great time, whatever you were thinking. <laughs> so, The books you write are obviously page-turners. They're mysteries, and, and just that is very interesting. But from what I have read, you have other aims in writing beyond just entertainment. And I love this quote from, uh, from your website. It said, One of my hopes with my books is to show prospective young musicians something about the world in which they're thinking of dedicating their lives. There's a lot of arbitrariness and luck involved on the road to success or failure. And then I, I love this next line. Yes, you need high, a high level of skill and musicianship just to be competitive, but knowing the right people and the ability to schmooze shouldn't be <laughs> underestimated either. Is that news to a lot of young musicians? Yeah, you know, I, it was news to me um, for sure. You know, it, in the music schools and the conservatories, we, we teach all the repertoire and the scales and the etudes and everyone, you know, works diligently to become the best violinist or pianist they can but then they graduate with their degree and they say I've got a degree and then what you know and it's the then what that really doesn't get taught very much at the universities and I think it would be great if there were a way to really um, expose students to really what it's like number one how to get a job which is one of the hardest things in the world Mm. to do I mean if you think Becoming a professional athlete is tough. I mean, it, being a professional musician um, is, is really cutthroat. Um, when, then once you get a job, you know how to build a career, you know, and, and just it's, it's, it's kind of an endless task. And, and I think a lot of students, you know, they, they could really benefit um, from some exposure to this in making life's decisions. And well, a lot of that does show up in your books. Yeah, yeah, just a sort of commentary from the people who are trying to do the very thing that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wonder if uh, can you tell who your audience is? I mean, the internet is so anonymous, but can you tell if they're they're male, female, younger, older, or just a full spectrum? Well, marketing studies show <laughs> that um, most mystery, well, the majority of mystery uh, novel readers are uh, middle-aged women. Hmm. Um, and if they're attracted to Jacobus, more power to them. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I get... Uh, You've given f- them someone they want to reform. I, That's what they- <laughs> um, I do get fan mail from all kinds of people, um, from all over the world, actually, and uh, not just uh, middle-aged women, but also a lot of musicians, a lot of students, uh, you know, a lot of people in, in different fields, a lot of frustrated musicians. So, um, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm quite pleased that I've been able to reach a, a broader base of readership. And if I may interject one thing, you know, I, I have written these four books, and I would like to announce f- for the first time Yes, on, yes, on, please do. Here's our air, drum roll. That um, I have just uh, agreed uh, to write a fifth book, in the series with uh, a new publisher, Severn House. Um, so uh, Jacobus is uh, alive and well. And uh, Are you announcing you know. the title yet? Well, uh, the title may be Playing With Fire. Um, and it's about a, um, instead of being based on a piece of music, it's, it, 
the next series is going to be based upon venues in the music world. This is going to be a violin shop, and hopefully in the future there will be conservatory, a music tour, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, music festival. So we'll see. Well, we're glad to have moved into not just music, but breaking news now for <laughs> Highway 89 with the announcement of that new book. That's terrific. Good. I, I, I want to ask uh, someone like Edgar Allan Poe, who did write his share of suspenseful and actually some, some downright creepy stuff to make mm-hmm. you shiver at night when you read that. Uh, but he also wrote some very nice love poetry. Do you have a secret book of love poetry on a shelf somewhere that you're working on or, or some other, or a cooking book or, or some secret other thing? Um, well, I, I did have a, a recipe recently published in the Mystery Writers of America cookbook. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do they, do it's a recipe a... I picked up when we were living in Italy, by the way. So, and for and what? What's it for? It's for a dish called porchetta, which is uh, roast pork with all kinds. Oh of my goodness! Interesting. And is there a mystery ingredient, or you just list all the ingredients? I, it, there's no mystery. Okay. At all. <laughs> well, tell us about uh, this next piece. We're going to hear uh, excerpts from Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration. Yeah, like like all the other books in the series. Um, the music itself is based upon a story. And in this um, story that Strauss had in his mind when he wrote it, uh, it's about this man who's at the end of his life on his deathbed. And you'll hear in the first excerpt, you know, the, his, his panting, his frailness, um, reflecting back on a life which he believes he didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve. So you'll hear. Um, sort of a, an optimistic flashback to his life, and it's a beautiful little violin solo. Uh, but then you'll hear his body being racked by pain and torment, um, which will be the third excerpt. And finally, um, when his life comes to an end, he sees uh, the heavens open up for him, uh, and Strauss writes one of the most beautiful melodies he ever wrote. And I'll, I'll try to play that. It's, it's written th- for all the or- orchestra instruments, but I'll try to play it on the violin. And also, like all the, the other books in the series, um, I relate the story of the music to the story of the, uh, the, the book. And in, in this case, it's about a, a symphony orchestra that is undergoing all kinds of tensions and inner turmoil. Wonderful. Let's hear these excerpts from Death and Transfiguration by Richard Strauss. All these excerpts will take this full tour of the work in just over two minutes, which is pretty remarkable by itself. Uh, Strauss wrote this inspired by a poem by his friend Alexander Ritter, as we've heard. And I think it's really interesting to hear that serve also as a metaphor for an orchestra going through changes. Very interesting. Here is Gerald Elias with our final number, excerpts from Death and Transfiguration.
live on Highway 89. Gerald Elias with excerpts from Death and Transfiguration, also a title of one of his books, and that piece by Richard Strauss. That ends our episode of Music to Die For. Our guests today were violinist Gerald Elias and pianist Heather Connor. Jerry, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. One last question. Do you have a tentative deadline for writing and turning in and publishing this next book? Well, I need to turn it into the editor by mid-October, and then it's going to be released next spring. All right. And thank you to Cecily Patton. Thanks for being so helpful to the show today and uh, helping get uh, supplies that were needed from Salt Lake City down to BYU Broadcasting. At GeraldElias.com, you can learn more about the murder mystery books and his latest music projects. You can also access his Music to Die For page featuring music from the novels and his commentary and notes on the pieces. And don't forget, we like to hear from you, our listeners. Send your comments and questions by email to highway89 at byu.edu. Our Instagram and Twitter feeds are at BYUH89. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. The recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our student assistant is Abby Horlocker. And our indefatigable producer is Jackie Tateishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. Thank you.